0: Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate.
1: Hello, good morning and welcome to this week's edition of Scotland's talking. I'm Ali Bally. On the programme between now and midday, should primary one pupils have to sit tests... Some parents are worried it puts the youngsters under too much stress at the start of their school life.
0: Some of the children enjoyed them and found them fun and other children found them upsetting and distressing because children were taken individually away to a separate space, often by a teacher they didn't know and then were asked to do a test on a computer when they didn't know how to work the computer.
1: But are we being too protective? Is it more important to know what learning stage our children are at by giving them a test early? Also on the programme today, one man's story about how he contemplated suicide last month, but how he's turned that around
2: to help others. I was effectively having a fight with myself for two hours walking up and down that bridge. You know, I went to the doctors the next day and told them that I was at real crisis point. Mm. However, what I found out was is that shortly after I had left left the bridge that evening, was is that a young woman from another town had mm. came to the exact same spot and ended her life. We'll hear how Alistair Wilson from Lanark
1: hopes he can help others who find themselves in the same position. And we're all also asking what your opinion is on second post-mortems being carried out. Can they give families more closure? Michael Porter from Dumfries thinks so after the death of his mum over in Crete.
3: They're the things that are going to give us answers and confirmation to whether the forensic team and the hospital team over in that foreign country have done the right tests and given us the right answers. But
1: Elaine Gordon from down in Birmingham has started a campaign to stop them after the death of her sister.
4: That waiting was just beyond anything that I have ever experienced the pain and not being able to see my sister and not being able to just be with her. It was enough to go through the trauma of knowing that we had lost her so suddenly.
1: Plus, we also, of course, open the lines for any other business. If there's something you want to talk about, get ready to call 0333 2020 401.
0: Turning Point Scotland. Scotland's talking.
1: Music and conversation taking us through until midday. And we start off with testing, testing children who've just arrived in a classroom at five years old, going into the school for the first time. Yes, many will have gone to school this week, perhaps looking forward, some of them, to starting school next week. But did you know, as I say, soon after primary ones start class, they're given a test to check what stage they're at in terms of learning. Well, new research has shown around 70% of parents didn't know this. They weren't aware of it. And even more than that, 90% didn't know they could actually opt out. The study was done by a group called Connect. They used to be called the Scottish Parents' Teachers' Council. They're putting pressure on Education Secretary John Swinney to scrap the tests with claims they're driving children to tears and actually don't do anything to close the attainment gap. John
5: Callan from our news team spoke to Tina Wilno from the group to find out more. First of all, just talk me through some of the main findings that, that you got from this research.
0: I think the over, overwhelming finding was that parents knew very little about the P1 um, assessment and weren't being kept in the loop um, by their schools and weren't sure when their children were doing the test and weren't sure what the kind of learning, next steps in learning were after the test.
5: Mhm, and uh, you also had some of the the qualitative findings. Uh, you had some sort of responses from from children themselves. What what were they saying?
0: Well, we'd asked parents what their children had said about the um, their experience of the tests and what the children. Some of the children enjoyed them and found them fun, and other children found them upsetting and distressing, because children were taken individually away to a separate space. For example, the head teacher's office often by a teacher they didn't know, and then were asked to do a test on a computer when they didn't know how to work the computer. Um, We talk about children aged anywhere between four and six in P1, so their knowledge of computers and strange spaces and their confidence in those situations is going to vary considerably.
5: And were you quite surprised by the findings?
0: I think we were we, we saw things from a child's perspective um, hearing how how parents reported what their children's experiences were you know we understood what it might feel like for a, a small child who's sometimes new into school and certainly in their first year of school um, being taken to one side to do a test even if some of them are told it's a game um, they're kind of separated out from their normal classroom setting um, and that gave a real perspective on what what they're feelings might be. Um, More confident children who might find using a computer easy um, would have found it fun and certainly some of the parents did report that.
5: Yeah you you did, um, I saw some of the responses with with some kids who did enjoy them and indeed that's you know what the the education secretary said last week was was the point that they were supposed to be enjoyable. Um, Is it possible that because it's a new thing it just needs these kind of teething problems ironed out?
0: I think there's definitely going to be an element of that. I think there is also the assumption that there is internet connectivity to do these tests in classrooms, which I think many schools still don't have access to. I think there's also a lot of pressure on schools and on teachers for children to do well in these, because it's you know, whilst it's a kind of data handling exercise to get a snapshot in time schools and teachers do feel pressured that they need to be kind of delivering results and as a result of that they want children to have quiet and to concentrate and to do their best so you're already kind of formalizing the test situation when it is meant to be part of your classroom experience and maybe everybody does it at once or several children do it at the same time and that doesn 't seem to be happening we 're not entirely sure why
5: mm-hmm. so is there a way that you can see or, or, or that from the point of view of connect you can see these standardized testing working
0: We think that this is a very young group of children to be sitting them down and assessing them and measuring them in this way. Um, I think we can understand why government might want to get a snapshot in time of where children are at in order to track progress but Actually, is this the right way to do it? Is there a way to enable teachers to do it, perhaps using um, a standard assessment format that government has created, but that you know teachers have much more discretion about when and where they use it? There needs to be more conversations um, with teachers and head teachers about this. It all, I suppose, stems back to teachers' approaches to tests and young children. Um, how do you make it stress-free for children? There's always going to be young children who find it difficult because in the nature of these national measures, everyone can't be the same.
5: Yeah, we've, we've already had some politicians coming out and saying that the, the, the assessment should be scrapped. Would you agree with that? Yes. And why is that?
0: Because it's not an appropriate thing to put young children through.
5: So uh, is, that, is that what you'd like to see happen now?
0: I think so. They need to be scrapped. There needs to be a different way of getting a, a snapshot in time, um, perhaps with different age groups. Children are so different when they come into school at P1 and their experience is so varied that you know, learning is a cumulative experience. You, you're not going to, even from a snapshot in time, get a real picture of children's progress.
1: Tina Woolnow speaking there to John Callan and giving her thoughts and the group's thoughts. The group uh, are called Connect, um, calling for these tests to be scrapped. They are not appropriate, she says. However, a statement from the Scottish Government says the tests provide consistency and are an important means for teachers to identify children's next steps in learning. It's also publishing a review into the tests later this month. But backing the calls for them to be scrapped is campaign group Upstart Scotland. Now, it's distributed 30,000 postcards to parents with children starting P1, urging them to hand them into schools and boycott the tests. Now, here's what the postcard says. I do not want my child to sit primary one tests of literacy and numeracy. I firmly believe that national standardized assessment of this kind is not de-vent-men- sorry appropriate for young children. I would therefore prefer assessment to be based on teacher observation and professional judgment in accordance with the early level of the curriculum for excellence so there's the question then: what do we do here would you would you if that card came to you would you sign it? Do you think primary ones have enough stress starting school for the first time without being hit with a test? Or do you think where's the harm? It is important surely to know where your child is at at the start of their education so you can help them achieve more or perhaps you can see both sides and think yeah testing early is important perhaps it could be done differently. If you're a teacher involved in this, I realise, you know, that you, you can't really comment and say who you are. But if, if you'd like to come on and give me your view, then we're quite happy for you to remain anonymous because I know some education authorities don't like you to, to have a voice, you know, and, and that's okay. That's, that's, how, that's how they work it. That's fine. Um, but uh, if you are a teacher, because I think that's important thing. How do the teachers feel about this? You can hardly ask uh, a primary one. People, can you? You can hardly go up to the wee ones and say, how do you feel about this getting tested a couple of days into you turning up in school for the first time? What do you think? Let me know. Here's the number. 0333 2020 401. Give me a call now. Love to hear from you. As I say, particularly if, if someone in your family's just gone to school or indeed, uh, you know, that will be coming up. How do you feel about your wee one being tested very quickly once they get in there? I think some of the the things that we are hearing there, you know, they get taken away out of the normal classroom um, to maybe where a computer is and sat down to and told to get on with working a computer when they don't know how to work a computer. That's a bit worrying. That number again, 0333 2020 401. It's only a local rate to call us, but some phone providers may apply for their charges. Audrey, good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Good morning, Audrey. Right, what's your thoughts on this then?
6: I think that if a parent or guardian was to accompany the child into the different classroom, that that would be fine. It's a good compromise between what a group is asking for and what the child and the parents are wishing also. Mm
1: -hmm. Do you not think, though, that if, if the parent or guardian, as you say, um, was to go into, uh, you know, if, well, we so and so is being tested tomorrow morning at half past nine. So first of all, the parent or guardian's got to to get in there, or they can be there. They don't maybe don't have to be there the way you're saying It could be voluntary. But if a question was to come up on a computer, and the wee one was struggling, as your parent or, or the guardian, you surely be tempted to help them, and that would be an unfair advantage on somebody whose parents or guardians weren't there. Yes, oh, def, oh definitely. Yeah, yeah, you need to turn that radio off. You're getting confused here. That's, you shouldn't be listening to yourself on the radio. But, uh, Audrey, thank you very much indeed for, for that uh, comment. This,
0: this is Scotland's Talking.
1: It's exactly 10.30, music and conversation through until At 12 midday, we're talking at the moment about primary ones, starting class Some just gone in and some will be going in uh, this week coming as well. And uh, an amazing statistic is is that uh, 70% of parents didn't know that primary ones uh, were given a test to check which stage they're at in terms of learning. 70% of parents didn't know that. And even more than that, 90% didn't know they can actually say, no, no, not doing it, opting out of that. What do you think? Um, Patricia, good morning. Good morning, Ali. Right, Patricia. Tell us what you think.
6: Well, my little grandson has just started school this week, um, and he's only four. He won't be five until the end of November, and I just think it's too much for these young children. Um, everything's all new, Tot- and they've gone to most of them have gone to nursery, but mm-hmm. school is totally different. Uh, there's so much for them to learn, There's so much going on. I don't think they need any other pressure. And experienced teachers, and it should always be an experienced teacher taking primary one
1: classes. Um, is that is that not one of the problems though? Our primary one teachers, in this time that we have a shortage of teachers and... and... You know, teachers seem to be getting younger and younger. Either that or I'm getting older and older, Patricia. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) It's like policemen and policewomen walking the streets. You think, good grief, they look 12. (laughs) But um, teachers, you know, young, newly qualified teachers tend to go in there and they get the younger classes. Um, One thing you said there actually struck me as well that a lot of children now, before going to primary school, have been in nursery. So it's not like they're just getting used to this, is it? They have it's like a step up for them. They're going to the big school,
6: but nursery is totally different from from school. Totally, totally different. It's um, it's all about play, and although they're learning, they're learning through play. It's not a structured school. Um, They don't have to sit at a desk in the one place all the time. I just, I just think when when there is so much going on for them, so much change for them, mm-hmm. that it's had an awful lot of pressure. And and it's always been done by teacher observation. through so the class, that's how they've always, um, with the wee ones worked out what stage they're at. Um,
1: yeah, as you say, I, I, it, it, it's all new. I mean, I I'm in the same position as you. I have a granddaughter who went to. School started school for the first time on Tuesday. I'm not too sure that she wanted to go back on Wednesday, but I think she definitely started on Tuesday and enjoyed it. But when it comes to actually doing tests, I'd be concerned, I think, if some some pupils in the, the, the wee ones starting school were actually going through the tests and there are others who are being, their parents are saying, no, because you're not getting a, a true picture. Would you not be interested in knowing how how your grandson's getting on?
6: Yes, yes, of course. But that that can be done just by by teacher observation. You know, the the teacher um, she's giving the the, the children out sh- the the work sheets or whatever, the words to tell them at home, etc. And um, and by by observing that and by what they, they do it, it, in school, she or he will know. Um, how, the, how they're doing and, and what stage they're at and, and which children should be grouped together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just think putting them under the pressure of testing is an awful lot.
1: So this group, Upstart Scotland, who have sent out 30,000 postcards to parents with children starting uh, primary one, um, as I say, it reads, I do not want my child to set the primary one test of literacy um, and numeracy. What would you do? What if, if if you were in the situation um and it wasn't your grandson, it was actually your son, right now, would you sign no? that? Would you say no I don't want them to take part?
6: I am not sure about that either because then again you're making the children different. hmm
1: Yeah.
6: And I, yeah. I I I wouldn't be happy about that. You know, I would rather I would rather it was scrapped rather than right. um, parents opting out because you don't want some children doing it and some children not doing it.
1: Well, certainly, um, that seems to be the call, isn't it? That it's is scrapped rather than uh, some doing it and some don't doing it. I think that's that's a good point because they would be different. Some would yeah. be getting to to do it on the computers and others wouldn't. It would, it would, yeah. it would stand them apart. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Patricia. Thank yeah, you very thank you. much indeed for coming on.
6: You're welcome, Alice. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, bye.
1: Your thoughts then, 333 Treble Three, twenty twenty four oh one. You can text 61054, start your message with Ali, or you can email ali at thegreatesthits.co.uk if you've got a comment to make on that. Many children uh, starting school for the first time uh, last week and starting this week staggered all over the place across Scotland. And um, as I say, uh, fairly... High percentage of parents didn't know that primary ones would be given a test. That's four, as as Patricia was saying, four and five-year-olds given a test um, fairly soon to find out where their level is at. Uh, Your thoughts on that? More than welcome. Catherine, hello.
7: Hello, good morning. Good morning Um, to you. um, I just want to say that testing in primary one is not new. It's been going on for a long, long time. I was a primary one teacher for about, at least 15 years. And I've been retired since 2011. Mm -hmm. And I was doing testing in primary one for a good number of years before I retired. Um, I have to say, there was nothing stressful about it at all. The children um, were given a treat, they were given a biscuit and a drink of juice. And we did the test. And there was no big deal made of it. I just feel it's parents who have got on the bandwagon. And, you know, it's just something else to complain about. Uh,
1: But are these tests that John's, I mean, you're talking about... Um, the years that you were a primary school teacher, these uh-huh. tests have been brought in by John Swinney and he wasn't the ed- yes. Education Secretary no. then. So has he, has he made some change then? What, what...
7: It probably has. It wasn't computerised when I did it. We had a book. We had a book and it was story-based. We we started by reading the story and then there was a series of questions that you had to ask the children which assessed their understanding of phonics and number and there was a wee bit of addition and a wee bit of a sense of subtraction but there was no big deal made about it. If the children didn't know the answer, we just said, "Oh, that's fine. Don't worry about it," and we just moved on to the next one. And were these believe, were these individual? Yes, these were all individual. The children were taken individually to do it. As as for the children having to go with a stranger in the school, all through the children's lives in school, they're going to be working with other people. There'll be other people coming and going in the classroom. At the moment, zero mm. classroom assistants and and whatnot. So it's just it's just I just feel parents get in a state over. You know nothing, really. You know, and um, it's no big. It was no big deal when I when I was teaching.
1: So, I'm just looking um, at some of the again some of the things I jotted down that um, uh-huh. Tina Wilno said from uh, Scottish Parents Teachers Council. Um, sh- she was saying, you know, that that just as you mentioned there, uh, people sometimes not their teacher coming and taking them away to a different yes, room uh-huh. um, and yes. being asked to work a computer when they maybe had no clue how to work a computer. So, that, yeah, uh-huh. so has it but moved on a bit, do you think, then, I, I think
7: it's moved on, but I don't believe for a minute that any primary one child... Four, I mean, I've got a four-year-old granddaughter who just started last week. Um, I don't believe that any four- or five-year-old child will be taken into a room, sat in front of a computer, and left to work at themselves. There'll be someone with them talking them through it, and, they, they, you know, it, it's just... I, I don't see it being a big deal, quite honestly.
1: When you say you just say, it as parents getting on the bandwagon, bandwagon,
8: Is, is it a case but, of
1: you're thinking, you know, parents should <laughs> let teachers teach and get on with their jobs?
8: Yes,
7: let teachers get on with their job. We used it as, <coughs> excuse me, a baseline. It was baseline assessment. We called it, and then at the end of the school year, they were given the same test just to see how far they had had moved it forward. <coughs> <coughs> excuse me. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. no, I, I, I'm taking your point and, you know, I, I'm thinking there that um, we should surely want to know where they are at yes, the beginning, uh-huh. where we are at the middle and where we are at the and end. And
7: where we are at the end, yes. Because yes.
1: It, uh, you, that's how you would adv- identify whether not only a child is making good progress, but then again, if, if it's a child that's been a bit slower, then you can give more yes. more attention to.
7: Yes, and you can maybe pick up the children who are going to need that little bit of extra help at the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, Catherine, from right. a point of view of the teacher, thank you very much indeed. Right. Thank you. Okay, then. Thank, thank you. you bye bye. Bye bye. So, there anyway, we'll keep that uh, going if you'd like to comment on that. This is Scotland's talking. This week in our news bulletins, you may have heard the story of a man from Lanark and how just last month he was contemplating suicide. Dad of three, Alistair Wilson, was diagnosed with depression as a teenager. And at 31 years old, he found himself in crisis at Cartland Bridge thinking about taking his own life. But he managed to get through it and has now gone back to that spot with messages of hope and support for others in that situation. Our senior reporter Colin Stone
2: spoke to him. So Alistair, just talk me through your story of how you got to where you are today. Um, Well, I suppose, start at the beginning. um, I was diagnosed with depression when I was 17. Um however, I wasn't really allocated any form of uh, treatment. I was just given a prescription and sent in my merry way, so I never really dealt with it um and it kind of came to catch up with me um you know, the further that I progressed down the line um and I've kind of been battling with it ever since um on and off so um, there was an event when I was um, in my twenties where um I had tried to take my own life um and from there, it was about trying to just build myself back up, um, you know, mentally and physically, um, to try and tackle everything that I was going through. And there was lots of therapies and things in that process that I had tried, some that didn't work, some that did, um, kind of trial and error. Um, however, over the past kind of couple of years, I have been having a bit of a relapse, so that kind of led me to where I was um, on the bridge. Um, four weeks ago now. And what was your your hopes and thoughts behind putting these cards on the bridge? Well, it was brought around by um, quite a sad turn of events. Um, four weeks ago, I was on that bridge, kind of contemplating why I shouldn't throw myself off, and it's a really bad place to be. So, I was effectively having a fight with myself for two hours, walking up and down that bridge, trying to Convince myself that this isn't the way to do it. Um, I did succeed, and you know I went to the doctors the next day and told them that I was at real crisis point. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what I found out was is that shortly after I had left, left the bridge that evening was is that a young woman from another town had mm-hmm. came to the exact same spot and ended her life. And it was at that point Alistair thought it
1: was time to try and make a change, not just for him, but for other people. He hopes the posters he's put up at the bridge will help others in crisis. One of them reads, If you're looking for a sign not to kill yourself, this is it. He goes on to tell Colin how the death of the woman just hours after he was contemplating the same
2: thing changed the way he was thinking. It put me in a really strange position where... You know if I'd been there longer maybe I could have helped um or you know what what could have been there to have stopped either of us in the position that we were in um and then to see the the grief unfold as well um, you know it left me with a lot of a lot of guilt and um it was just a feeling that I knew that I needed to do something about with the cards obviously you made that decision to try and help other people do you think having that experience yourself means that you know what they're going through and that the things you wrote on the cards can help them? The things that I've written on the cards, um, I'll be completely honest, are things that I would want to hear. Um, When I get exceedingly down, I get tunnel vision. Um, You lose track of all the good things that are in your life. Um, I have three kids and at my lowest point I can't even picture them and that is the hardest thing. So it's as if you need something to almost pull you back into reality. So I made 20 cards of things that I would want to hear that may stop me, but at the same time might also give you a couple of seconds where you're standing on that bridge longer for someone else to stop you. Um, the way I looked at it, it was almost like self-defense. You know, Should I ever be down at that bridge? Those are 20 messages that could help me. So if they help someone else, that's great. Um, So that was effectively the plan. Um, You know, when you turn up at that bridge, um, there's two bridges. There's one with nothing, with no help. Or there's one with 20 signs telling you that you are worth it, which is exactly how you're feeling. You know, you do not feel that you're worth anything and you don't feel that you're worth going on. So maybe having an outside influence, just staring you in the face, might be enough. So what's next, Alistair? Are you satisfied that if these cards can even help one person, then your job is done? I'll be honest. Um, I don't want to stop. Um, what I've done is, is that I've worked with the charity Brothers in Arms and I've sent them over the templates that I made in the hope that people can use this as a downloadable resource and they can put them in areas in which they feel it's needed. Um you know, there, there are hot spots effectively and if other people can do the same thing then great. You know, we might be able to do something, you know, nationally which could stop this or at least lower it and give somebody a chance. Um, but I'm never gonna stop trying to raise awareness um within the UK. Um it's become an epidemic and I've lost too many people, too many good people, um in my lifetime already, um and I've almost lost myself. So it's, it's something that I'm never going to stop doing. Alistair Wilson
1: there. Um, quite an inspiration, a good story. And, and how can you just a few weeks ago be in the mindset to take your own life, but now want to go out of your way to stop others from doing just that? It's his bravery in speaking out, I suppose, and, and doing something that could just be a lifeline for other people. Because somewhere right now, Somebody's thinking about committing suicide. Might be your next door neighbour. Might be a family member. So is speaking out the way we battle mental illness and ultimately suicide? Are more people affected by it? Or, due to social media and, and the way we talk about things now, are people simply just talking more about it? Are we more open? Is it the little things like Alistair's posters that will go a long way to helping people? Or does something bigger on a political level perhaps need to happen? And how do we get that to happen? I didn't know we were going to be talking about this this week on the programme until yesterday because I've been away most of this week and um, uh, the team brought this together. But one thing that came to me this week. I I was sitting just going through emails and things while I was on holiday. You know, you're just checking it all. I know, sad. I'm sitting through my emails. But there was a story of the Tay Road Bridge being closed. And I think it ended up being closed for something like five hours during the rush hour, early morning traffic. It was from about four o'clock till ten o'clock. I apologise if I get the times wrong, but I'm just trying to give the picture there that I, I was following this on Facebook and following all the comments that were on sites of people who were being diverted, who were going to be late for their work, who may get an hour's pay docked because they would have to. The police were then cl- telling people to to go from Fife or or whichever way they were going, they'd have to go around Perth, which could take an hour, an hour and a half longer. I was quite astonished at the lack of, I don't even mean sympathy. I mean, everybody was at that point guessing that it was closed because someone was on the bridge going to take their life and the police were actively trying to talk this person out of taking their life. Now, whether that takes an hour or takes it five hours, is it really right that we should be on social media and this very large conversation going on with people saying, this is ridiculous, I'm going to be an hour late for my work. Someone else saying, someone may be trying to take their life here. Well, this is still ridiculous. They're they causing an inconvenience. They should go, you know, it was just, there was no sympathy there at all. Why is that? Why are we just, you know, when people suffer from mental health, is it because it's that silent disease that you can't actually see? Probably get more sympathy if they're a broken leg. What's your thoughts?
0: Turning Point Scotland. Scotland's talking.
1: Just before the news, we were talking uh, about uh, the man, or or listening to his story, Alistair Wilson, who was diagnosed with depression as a teenager and how he, last month, was contemplating suicide, but had moved forward. And I was telling the story also of uh, the Tay Road Bridge this week, which was close. I'm sure it was Thursday, Thursday or Friday morning. Um, when it was closed for something like five hours because of someone on the bridge uh, threatening to take their own life. And I was astonished at some of the um, some of the comments on social media. There seemed to be this uh, column of... And there was a lot. I mean, I'm talking about a lot. A lot of people who had been caught up in this and were having... Then when the police said, take a diversion via Perth, which added an hour and a half on to their journey... Um, people were interested uh, are more interested in losing um, possibly uh, an hour 's pay or indeed having to work extra in the evening their delay their inconvenience that was seemed to be what it was all about was the inconvenience to them that this person was, was doing uh, here 's one in from Trish and she says it 's awful that the general public have to take the help to others suffering. If there was more help when at crisis points, like more CPNs, then perhaps this would not be needed. However, I also feel that any help given is fantastic, and well done to Alistair Wilson. Uh, thank you very much indeed for that, Trish. Uh, and then also another text in here. That you, just just listen to this. Think, think about this. Listen to this one. Ali, when my son took his own life in the local park, I was stopped in the street by someone complaining because the park had been sealed off, and they had to go the long way around to get their newspaper. really, dear me, well first of all my my sympathies with you um for what you had to go through in the the whole thing there, but yeah i I, I can see that happening. i can you know it it just seems we do, we don't care about other people. Could be wrong. This,
0: this, this is Scotland's Talking.
1: Earlier on in the programme, we were talking about testing primary ones, and uh, those are children who have just gone into school, who are aged between four and five, of course. Uh, research shows that 70% of parents didn't know that children that age would be tested, and even more than that, 90% didn't know that they could opt out of it. Uh, Elizabeth is in Cooper. Elizabeth, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Um, Your thoughts on this then?
8: Yes, my thoughts on this. Well, I think it's totally barbaric. And segregating children at such a young age when they've just started school is just absolutely ridiculous. When you start... Starting school is one of the biggest things in a child's life. Mm -hmm. And they have to face many things. And they have to learn to they're put into this massive building with lots and lots of children from a small nursery, say. They have to find their way about. They have to learn to integrate with new children, find who their new friends are, uh, social skills, various other things. But testing them and segregating them um, at such a young age is, in my opinion, not a good idea. And it could could really... um, young children, you know, not want to go back to school because somebody's, you know, say this child can read, this child's not as good at reading. All children develop at different stages. And personally, I believe that it's Mr Sweeney's named person tactics. That's what he's trying out because he is determined to have this go ahead, even though the court said no because it was... Um, approaching on people's rights. He
1: seems and to be wanting to push it through the back door, doesn't he? He's not giving up on this at all.
8: He's not. and it's, it's, it's just crazy. Going against the courts, I don't... I mean, no one's above the law, so I don't think that he should go against the courts. But I have read the article saying that he's got snoops out uh, in about, and the people they' are going to use are doctors, doctors who are overstretched, some surgeries having to close down because they don 't have enough do- doctors, radiology department uh, closing down because there aren't enough there's not enough staff police police are overstretched it's just ridiculous, and I do believe that this is just another way of the Scottish Government trying to um, rule. <laughs> children and get them at a young age and I just do not believe in it at all and I think it's absolutely disgraceful and just let the children settle in just let them find their way teachers standing up in a class with a new class I believe we'd be able to know Mm. by just talking to a class I don't... don't have to take them out and test them
1: Elizabeth, have you got personal experience of this? I mean, do you have a young one at school, or is this just... No, no? I'm,
8: I'm actually, I, my, my, well, my youngest grandchild is seven. Right. But my eldest grandson, who is 24 now, um, perhaps at his age was a later developer, but sometimes schools are not interested in later developers. They just want good results, good test results, you know? So I felt that he was neglected. Um, my his younger brother, who is now eighteen, he left school. He was um, study time, but he went into school to get extra tuition uh, for the, for his exam. But the teacher that was supposed to come didn't turn up, so there's a that down again. Um, but no, no, I I'm, I'm a great grandmother now, so. You know, I, I don't have any children.
1: No, but you've got the, you've got the experience, Elizabeth. That's, I've got the experience. That's, that's it, yeah. So as, as far as you're concerned, these um, primary ones' testing should be scrapped.
8: It should be scrapped. I mean, it's, it's, they have enough to cope with. That is a lot of pressure to put on from four to five-year-olds. Yeah. A lot of pressure to put, unnecessary pressure. And I believe it's this government who are trying so hard to snoop into every, from birth to 16-year-olds, trying to snoop into their lives, and it's got to be stopped. They, keep, they cannot get away with doing that. It is totally, uh, it's just, it's just, um, oh, I, I, the word I'm looking for, it's... it's, it's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wrong. Bullying, It's It's wrong, it yes. It's okay. wrong. It's buoying. It's just not on. There now. I feel so much better. You feel
1: better. You've got it off your chest, Elizabeth. Thank well, no, you very I'm much dead. indeed. Thank you. Thank you. You're
8: you welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: It's a programme that's all about opinions. You can have yours. That's the testing we've been talking about. We've also been talking about suicide this morning. And um, uh, James, you've got a view. James, good morning to you.
9: Good morning, Ali. Yes, I have. Um, both my son and daughter suffered from depression different extents and from different um, difficulties that they had but what surprised me was the attitude of people but when my daughter was first depressed her doctor sat her down and ignored other patients waiting and explained to her that because she didn't have a bandage around it, nobody would understand that she was broken, she was ill and and that was a big thing because um, as you say, people don't understand if you have a broken leg, you have a cast on it, if you have a broken arm, you have a cast on it if you have a broken head no one, not even understand understands to the same extent. In my son's case, he had help from friends and family and discovered that exercise um, helped. And he took up running and marathon running and raised money for charities. And the running created some endorphins in his brain which helped alleviate the depression pain. So everybody's got a different um, something that can help them. But it's just getting everyone to understand how depression affects people into dark, deep holes that mm. they definitely need help and they can look fine but be very ill.
1: And it must be quite harrowing for someone who is, uh, who is suffering from depression and suffering alone, unable to go and ask for help. But that's
9: right. We, we were lucky. He was a family have always been pretty close and, and his mum and I were able to help. His grand was able to help. His friends were able to help both him and my daughter, but for, for years some of my daughter's friends just couldn't accept that she was ill mm-hmm. that she had depression because they would see her on a good day and say oh you're fine, get on with it which really she was never fine
1: I'm sure that many persons listening this morning who have suffered and and maybe still suffering from uh, depression the worst thing you can say to them and, and I'm sure James you'll agree is for goodness sake, give, say, give yourself a shake.
9: I totally agree, Ali. That's the worst thing you can say to anyone. That That is just ignoring the problem and, and making it worse because these people then, the, the, the person suffering then feels worse because they can't give themselves a shake. They're in a place that isn't
1: good. And and are your children now on, in a good place? Or is, um, it, or is it something that you have to watch?
9: My son is in a good place, but my my daughter can 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 relapse so quickly. You just always have got to keep an eye on her. Um, but but she, she now recognises the symptoms and is able to talk better about it.
1: James, thank you very much indeed for sharing uh, your experiences. Thank you, uh, John. Good morning.
10: Good morning, Ali. How are you, my friend? I'm
1: good. I'm good. Thank you. Uh,
10: I'm I'm listening to this, Ali. Um, with a big heart, um, my heart goes out to these people. But I see another line on depression, Alley. I see us living in a country where once upon a time, not that long ago, if you had something needing done, there was always a neighbour or a pal who would come round and say, I'll give you a hand, I'll help you do that, I'll fix that for you, I'm a plaster, I can do that, would you owe you, buy me a pint. The good old days when we were all comrades and all working away and doing our thing. Slowly but surely, this country has taken our time away from us. They have taken away the weekend. They have taken away your time at night. To such an extent that every hour, every minute is a prisoner alley. Now, I feel this. This is a pressure on me. I'm sure it's a pressure on an awful lot of other people in the country. You're working hard to try and make ends meet and you never manage to get there. There's never enough. Mm-hmm. There's always somebody looking for another coin or another bit of tax or another bit of this. And it's it's changed and if only people would sit down and look at that. I mean, I call the government and it's not just the government that's in and out, it's all the governments that sat in Westminster, the government that stole the weekend. Because that was our time, Ali, that was the working man's time, where you could work, and it didn't matter what the pressures were of your working day, Monday to Friday, you knew when Friday came there was a bit of respite, but that's not there anymore, because it's, oh, I need to work Saturday, I need to work Sunday, and you're not even getting paid properly for it, it used to be at one time, a Saturday was time and a half, a Sunday was double time, now it's just another day, and it's... You're under the threat of you either do it or you don't work. And everything else goes up. And there was one thing that I just found out, and I need to check it up, I need to get my facts right before I, I shouldn't be able to say it, but I just found out that in England, Westminster has one of the lowest council taxes in the country. And if that is the case, Ali, then we really need to sit down and look at ourselves, because. It's getting to a stage where it's no the government to blame anymore, it's the people who are sitting letting it happen. Our children suffer because we have to work day and night to put a roof over their head. That's no right, Ali. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. And that, to me, is one of the big issues that is causing depression in this country, because it, it depresses me. And... Uh, I'm no one that ever, ever thought I would be, feel depressed. Sometimes I sit down at night, exhausted, tired after working 12 hours, trying to do my bit, and you sit down and you say, what is the purpose, what's the point? Because I'll get up tomorrow morning and somebody else will need paid. You
1: That's know, and no the week It starts out. all over again. It, 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 it also, it, start- it brings me to, to another subject I was going to raise, and and. I'll just bring it in here because I think I might know the way you'll you'll be thinking here. And I'm talking about Princess Eugenie getting married. Um, Whilst the royal family are paying for the wedding breakfast, we, the public, are picking up the £2 million tag for security. why, Why should we, Ali? Well, this minor royal who carries out no royal duties at all, um, and as one of the callers I'm reading here, um, you know, just getting the, the facts right uh, from Leslie Roberts in the, the Sunday Mail today, she says, you know, that um, she could have quite easily have chosen to marry in private at St George's Chapel, but she's decided she wants to go in an open-topped carriage procession down Windsor High Street, uh, just like Big Cousin Harry got, as Leslie says, and and therefore that means that the police are having to um, bring out more security, and that's going to, and we've got to pay for that, £2 million. Um, well, if her, th- if her th- father and family want to her to have that, that's who should be paying for it.
10: Correct, Ali. And see before they start the big hoo-ha about, oh, well, the money it'll bring into the country and the money that it'll do this. See if we had a country that had no homeless, that would bring just the same publicity in. So let's look at it down that road. I believe that the Queen does a good job and she's entitled to what she gets. The rest should be out working the same as the rest is. It's as simple as that, Ali. I mean, these people have just been found out, uh, the people with money and all the rest, they they can easily invest millions abroad and the government are doing nothing about it, taking millions of pounds out of the taxpayer's coffer. And yet the same government, are sitting down and telling us that we need to pay more into tax if we're wanting a better hospital system, if we're wanting this. Why do we allow it? Why do we
0: sit back and listen to it? This is Scotland's talking.
1: This week we've been speaking exclusively to two families in different ends of the country, and both with very different views when it comes to post-mortems. The first we'll hear from is a lady down in Birmingham called Elaine Gordon. Her sister Gina died suddenly in a car crash, but the family was unable to give her a proper funeral because her body was kept in the mortuary for months. It was down to the defence in the case wanting more tests, a 2nd postmortem, which is actually quite common and is not something you would know about unless I would think you have been involved, maybe in the family, and then everybody says, "Well, this is ridiculous." Elaine has now started a campaign calling for them to be banned. Our reporter Megan Jones spoke to her to find out more.
4: So, my sister Gina, um, she was one of my third eldest sister. She was loving, generous, just an awesome friend, and obviously somebody who I really miss a lot. Um, she was forty-four when she was when she died, and she was killed in a car crash on the 19th of December the week before Christmas 2014
7: what was that like for you as a family to go through that
4: so it was it was a massive shock like we were just not i got the phone call when i was at work and it was just i can't begin to tell you the pain that just surges through you we didn't get to see my sister she went out to work one day and she never came back and you know her car went up in flames and just never been able to see her again and um, You just can't put it into words. The pain that you just continue to carry all the time is is really distressing. What happened to Gina's body then? So when Gina was killed, she was then um, in the mortuary and we we knew after Christmas she was having a post-mortem, which was the normal practice, and she had that. And then a few days later we were told that she was going to have a second post-mortem and this was what shocked us because we didn't know that they would have a second post-mortem and why did she need one but we were told that she needed to have one because of the it would affect the court case if she didn't have it and it's just a it was really painful knowing that she was going through that and then there was a delay on it and we waited it was just under two months before we could get her back to have the the after the funeral what was all that waiting like not knowing when you'd be able to lay her to rest have a funeral That waiting was just beyond anything that I have ever experienced. The pain and not being able to see my sister and not being able to just be with her. It was enough to go through the trauma of knowing that we had lost her so suddenly, but then knowing that somebody else had the right to do a second post-mortem on her and their rights seemed to outweigh our rights and they didn't even know her or even care about it. The pain was just unbelievable I will, I will never forget that pain that we went through
7: So what would you like to see happen in the future so other families don't have to go through this?
4: I don't want a, another family to ever experience the weight or the distress or even going through the second post-mortem that we have and I want second postmortems to be stopped because one post-mortem is sufficient when it's done properly onto forensics that you should ha- not have a need for a second post-mortem So how are you going to push for this? So we've been having meetings with the chief coroner, we've been going to the police about this. We have written to all the coroners in the country to see the difference between the first post-mortem and the second post-mortem. And we've met with Professor Rutty who agrees that one post-mortem is sufficient and we'll be meeting with our local per, um, coroner to get changes really done and that you know they can have a CT scanning um, post-mortem instead which would push things through a lot quicker and what's being done now and the delays that they're having right now.
1: And closer to home now with the story of a Dumfries family and how a second post mortem actually helped them get closer to the answers they were looking for. In March 2009, 53 year old Jean Hanlon disappeared. Her body was found several days later in the sea off Crete. At the time, a local coroner ruled that she had died as, adult as a result of an accident. However, evidence later gathered by Jean's son, Michael, and his elder brothers, David and Robert, suggested otherwise. A 2nd postmortem, dem- demanded by the brothers revealed that Jean had died before entering the water, having suffered a broken neck and substantial other injuries. Our reporter, Kerry-Ann Doherty, has caught up with Michael to get his response to those calls for the 2nd postmortems to be banned.
7: So, Michael, tell me what happened to your mum.
1: My mother um, died in Crete on March
3: 2009 in suspicious circumstances. She went missing for four days and sadly on Friday the 13th her body was pulled from Heraklion Harbour. Since then me and my family have been campaigning and working tirelessly just to, to try and get them answers and help and justice that you know, should be given naturally to families when someone dies abroad. When a loved one dies abroad or even in England and they pass the border, you have to apply for a secondary post-mortem. Within all this time, you're losing time and time that's going to be beneficial to help solving and helping find them answers when someone has died.
7: So Michael, what was your initial reaction when I first told you about the Birmingham family who want to ban second post-mortems?
3: They are the things that are going to give us answers and confirmation to whether the forensic team and the hospital team over in that foreign country have done the right tests and given us the right answers I just certainly think that we should be able to have them options and we should have them choices to be able to to get a secondary postmortem without having to go through all those efforts and stress again it's all personal to each singular person you know i definitely do not think they should be banning secondary post mortems i think it should be an option or a choice dependent on each individual family we want to fight on as as much as we can and for as long as we can to make sure we find out all the unanswered questions and hopefully that big answer of what actually happened to our mother that night we're definitely going to fight on you know it's not one of it's not like a light switch that you can just turn on and off and just say that's it it's something that's going to be with us for the end of life now, you know, and sadly she isn't. But we obviously have to just make sure we do all we can in her name to make sure we
1: get her justice. So who do you side with? The family unable to bury their sister because of delays caused by a second post-mortem? Or the family close to getting answers over how their mum died in Crete? Is an outright ban the right thing or should families just have more of a say? Do you have experience of this yourself? Something that, you know, I I would never have thought of, you know, how it affects people because I don't think, you know, a second post-mortem is something that you would think of unless it actually affects you and your family. If you have a comment you would like to make, then of course, as always. The ways to get in touch, email Ali at uk, text 61054, start your message with Ali, or give us a call on 0333 202401. Coming up next on Scotland's Talk In, any other business. Anything you want to talk about, anything we've missed off today that has been getting, you know, you annoyed. I've got one in already, and it's uh, from, sorry, I've lost his name now. Oh, it's Gary. And Gary says... Um, I've heard and read a report that they're talking about banning smoking in the home. How on earth will that be policed? Surely, yet again, uh, we are being taken and, you know, not allowed to do what we want to do in our own home. Surely behind our own doors. What a load of nonsense. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, I'd read that little piece uh, today that uh, or this week that they were talking about Uh, banning smoking next in the home for the sake of children in that house. What's your thought on that? This This is is Scotland's talking On the phone lines, it's Anne Ferguson. Hello, Anne. Hello. What's your point then?
8: Uh, I think Princess Eugenie is just like her mother and just wants to... be out there. What's well, her
1: wedding. She'll want what she's used to. And she's used to the best things in life, isn't she? Whether it, she deserves it or not is a different thing.
8: Well, totally. I think she's jumping on the bandwagon of Prince Harry.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. I think she thinks that if he can have it, then that's what she should have as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, and it's only my opinion... She's brought up with that feeling of um, being entitled due to her father and mother probably telling her that all her life that she this is what she's entitled to exactly. but she doesn't do anything for it
11: you know she's, exactly
1: she doesn't. she doesn't actually do anything royal,
11: you know just... I mean what does
1: she do? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> And I don't really care. (laughs) And thank you for that. Okay. We're talking about uh, depression and suicide. Uh, And we had that story of uh, uh, a young man. Um, Here's Mrs. L who gets in and says, uh, she says, I understand what that young man must have been going through. I'm glad he's found the courage to be where he is now. I wish him all the very best for the future. And for people who mock mental illness, They should be prosecuted. Very hard thing to do. I've been mocked for having OCD, but I get used to it. I laugh with them, but it's not nice. Thank you for that. Um, It goes back again to the other one that we had, and I'm going to read it out again, just maybe makes people stop and think um, before they they mock someone with mental illness. But um, this is from someone who said, when my son took his own life in a local park, I was stopped in the street by someone complaining that because the park was sealed off, they had to go a long way to get a newspaper, the long way around to get a newspaper, really. Uh, Another one in here that says, Ali, uh, my husband took his own life when my daughter was age nine. When she was at high school, people used to make fun of her because her dad had killed himself. She now suffers from depression and it's taken her a long time to get over it. Thank you very much indeed for sharing that um, as well. Here's one from Sheila in Edinburgh. It says, I had defe- severe depression for eight years. Uh, I felt like ending it many a time, but I was lucky I had a good family and doctors that helped me through it, and nobody knows what it's like unless they've suffered it. It really is a cruel disease. That was over 20 years ago. I've never looked back. Thank you for that. Um, The sooner uh, this one is on the uh, Twitter, the sooner humans of whatever age learn to live with pressure, the better. Oh, this goes back to the this goes from uh, to the school testing. I see. Right. So they should live, uh, learn to live with pressure. The sooner, the better. It's part of life as long as we respect each other. Uh, No, they shouldn't. When will they be kids? Another one on the kids testing. You've heard how they saw themselves get stressed and terrified. They're five-year-olds, not first-year students. And Sam says, absolutely not, no testing. Let them be children. Let them find themselves first. It's disgraceful. Thank you, Sam. Under uh, any other business? Robert is
11: here. Hello, Robert. I might have spoke to you once a week back in April. Are
1: you there? Yes, we're listening. On you
11: go. Yes. Well, uh, so about a few weeks ago, Ali. I mind there was uh, there was two fires. There was one in Edinburgh. It was in a derelict school. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, I mind. Uh, I think there had been about forty firemen had attended to it. Right. Yes, and it was later. It was some teenagers, one about thirteen or fourteen, that had started the fire. Mm-hmm. And also the same week, there had been a fire at a, delicate, at a derelict hospital in Glasgow.
1: Right, so what's your point?
11: Uh, well, and this one took 16, and the thing was, there was actually near, the fire was near a hospital, it was up and running. Well, um, there I also had another fire in, in Edinburgh too, where it was started and of I'm just wondering what things are going to be like when they raise the age of criminal responsibility.
1: Right, okay, so you think that, or do you think that the age of responsibility should remain where it is then?
11: Yes, well, I think it should, should remain where it is. Well, how do they deal with it then now, are they? Well, it's the children's hearing, but they still got a, a criminal record from it. I know it ain't, it's maybe a bit of a young age.
1: Right, I think that's, that is a, a whole, you know, I know this is um, Robert's any other business, but I think there's a whole different. Subject that we could do there on this age responsibility and the whole thing about uh, children's hearing systems that we could do a whole bit on that and, and and I'd like to get to find out a wee bit more about it and then we'll maybe bring it as a as a subject. But you're you're concerned about the age of responsibility, particularly when we see those fires uh, that are being set by in, in in the main some of them that we've found out. Have been youngsters, teenagers who have been uh, just doing it for something to be done, and as Robert says, there it's it's also a, a, a case of using firemen's time up. Um, so it's an interesting subject. We will come back to that, Robert. I'm quite sure. Um, we we also uh, we, we we also will be talking next week. I've we just got a, a, a note in here um, from. Uh, a uh, gentleman who's saying that, here it is, got it now, it's uh, Stuart. Thank you, Stuart. He says, uh, surely we should be uh, talking this morning about the new rail increases, the prices on, on the fares. Um, I see, yes, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, but to that end, and to find out where our money is going, we have invited the Managing Director of Scott rail to join us, and he will join us on the programme next week to take your calls on uh, the train service um, that is coming and the train service that, uh, you know, the better he was on. I uh, was at about 18 months ago, maybe not as long as ago as that he, he was on the programme and uh, he's coming back. So we'll hear about where it's going on and no doubt he will defend the imp- increases as well. So Stuart, thank you very much indeed for your thoughts there. So we're almost at the end of the programme. I think that's it. Yes, I'm just being nodded. Don't take any more calls or you're going to run into the news time. Okay. I'm I'm taking note of that. Uh, As always, we say thank you very much indeed for your uh, company today and your calls as well. It's uh, very difficult sometimes to get around them all, um, and we have tried our best today. And and, um, I I think, again, to those who are calling in uh, serious subjects uh, uh, about suicide, lots of uh, calls in there, lots of calls in about the children's testing as well. Um, And and I still think that these... um, The statistics that we got, 70% of parents didn't know that their wee four- or five-year-old going into school for the first time would be subject very quickly to a test, and 90% didn't know that they could actually opt out of it. So um, that's been an interesting one today. In fact, we spoke about that a couple of months ago, uh, and it's interesting that there are even more statistics coming out. But as, as, as one grandmother said, she wouldn't like to say no I don't want my child to take part in that because then they would feel that they were perhaps um, being left out of something. So thanks for that. And thanks also to Alistair Wilson, who was uh, diagnosed with depression as a teenager, found himself in a crisis at Carnaline Bridge, thinking of taking his own life last month. But uh, he turned it around and was telling us his story. Lots of comments coming on uh, about that. So once again, through uh, Twitter and uh, through Social media, thank you very much indeed for your your comments. Sorry, I couldn't get round to them all. I'm Ali Bally, As I say, back with you next Sunday with Scotland's Talking. Thank you to us all for answering the question, asking, answering the calls, and also looking after Twitter and everything else as well. as well, we shall be back next Sunday, ten o'clock with Scotland's Talking. Look forward to your company then.
0: Have a good week. Bye-bye. Turning Point Scotland. Scotland's talking. Like and share us. And come back for the next episode next week.